1: welcome to three a part of the tennis channel podcast network i'm gil gross with joel drucker and amy lundy and it is another historic edition of three where novak djokovic wins his 23rd slam beating Casper rude in the 2023 roland garros final in straight sets joel uh i want to go to you to start historically what did this occasion mean to you this result
2: (laughs) this is just Staggering. I mean, and I, I was there when Pete Sampras won his 14th in 02, and that seems like long ago, and who was going to match that? And now he's won 23. And and the other thing is he looks pretty fresh. So it doesn't seem the end of it. And uh, halfway to the calendar slam, it's, when Novak did that in 2016, it had been 24 years since a man had done it, since Jim Curry did it in 92. Then Novak does it again five years later in 21. Then he does it two years later in 23. The quality of his tennis, all these things. I mean, we'll crack into this more. It's just incredible. It's an incredible athletic achievement. And obviously, an unbelievable tennis achievement. 23 majors. It's the first time he's vaulted past uh, Roger and Rafa on the tally.
3: When I first saw Tom Brady sitting in his box, I just could not believe the boldness. um, Like you're you're playing for to break the record, right? You're playing on not your best surface in somebody else's house. And you have the chutzpah, the, you know, fill in the word that you know, I'm thinking of, To invite Tom Brady. Yeah, let's invite Tom Brady to this. And and also have a number 23 Michael Jordan jacket pre-made for this occasion. Um, And then you back it up. And you do it in front of that. Um, I just, uh, you got to have a lot of confidence to pull that off. And he has it. And so massive respect. Like there's nobody like Novak Djokovic.
1: He has the records for being number one, most weeks at number one, most year end number ones, the record now for the most major titles at a time where, and look, there have been so many twists and turns in this that nobody would have expected. But at a time where Rafa's status as a contender in the future is entirely up in the air and questionable and Federer is retired. So it it is a real stamp on on Djokovic's legacy, I think, uh, because I think the way that you've put it, Joel, in the past is objectively, one by one, the arguments for Nadal and Federer as better than Novak have, have dissipated, uh, the objective arguments. And now the only record that I can think of that's significant is Jimmy Connors' 109 titles. Th- there's no other records that I can think of like major records uh that that are yet to be surpassed am i missing any
2: i was thinking about that that is a pretty interesting set of what those what those different quantitative things are and uh i think you're right but that's yeah so he's up to 94 now so that's a question of of 16 titles but uh that's a that's a different thing and i think actually i think in a way um i'm not the only one to believe this maybe these absences novak has had from, from slams and North American hardcore tennis have been a blessing, kept him, kept him fresh and allowed him to continue. Look, he's, he's only won two tournaments this year. No big deal. Is that right? He's only won two tournaments this year? Yeah. That's right. And, uh, and uh, the other thing with Novak, I think the legacy, when we speak of Federer Nadal, he spent so much of his career vying with those guys. So he's always had to keep upgrading upgrading. I think that's what's going to be his his great legacy is the quest And the fact that he had to kind of stay in there with those, it's like having two older siblings, but they never leave the house. They never go off to college. You're still having to prove it to them. And he's still done that. And it's just, it's just incredible. Just incredible.
3: And credit Nadal. He had his finger on the tweet button, uh, you know, as soon as the last point was won, he congratulated Novak and... Very classy message by Nadal. But let me remind you that we don't know what the future holds. Um, It seems right now that Novak will be the favorite going into Wimbledon. I personally am very excited to see him vie for the calendar slam. But we don't know what the future holds for Nadal. And there could be one more twist and turn in the road. That's why they play the sports. That's why the guys lace up their shoes. So it'll be a fun summer watching to see what happens next.
2: But we're not going to see Nadal this summer. So it's going to see who, who some of the other contenders are, whether it's the, you know, Kyrgios is making his way to grass. Who knows what Alcaraz has learned? Yeah, it's lots of, lots of, lots of things. I mean, I know but about- he,
3: Nadal has not retired. No, he Nadal's not, not retired. retired. Right.
2: He'll be back in 24, probably. Look, I. This year.
3: I said last year,
1: and I don't know if I said it after the US Open or if I said it earlier than that, but the main factor uh, in, and this wasn't about Djokovic Alcaraz. This was at the time, potentially about Nadal Alcaraz, but I said last year, that Alcaraz and the ability to beat Alcaraz is going to be a real key moving forward in the slam race because you're gonna I, they're gonna have to go through him, and Novak went through him, and that was crucial here. Now, yes, Wimbledon would have been the the easier one and has been the easier one, uh, which almost makes doing it here at Roland Garros even mm-hmm. even sweeter
2: for him.
3: Yeah, I have yeah. a question
2: for you too. Oh, go ahead, Amy. You're about to say something.
3: No, I'm just putting some more light on myself. I look so, pretty um, dark there. Here's
2: a question for you too. So Novak gets through the Alcarez challenge. Was it more revealing that Novak did that with kind of the proving his own physical fit, his physical, emotional fitness, and even the, the kind of, that was the lesson to Alcarez? Or would it have been more emphatic if Novak had beaten him in a long and tough five setter? obviously that would have been a more pleasing match to watch. But does Alcaraz like, which is the bigger lesson learned like Alcaraz has some learning to do about management about his how he manages himself and his energy and all his other stuff and was that more profound than if he had if it had just been a, a tussle you know a 6-4 in the fifth
1: go ahead yeah okay so for me just educationally and you know when i when i think back about just learning how these things work in the sport the way Novak won it was actually uh, really, really eye-opening. Again, not as entertaining, but the fact is Alcaraz has been dynamite in finals throughout his career, uh, his young career. He has a great record in finals. No moment has really ever seemed too big, uh, with the exception of of some, you know, maybe the Roland Garros match against Verev last year. And then the Wimbledon match against center, he wasn't all that clutch, but then he wins the U S open point is how overwhelmed he was by that moment. And that occasion, the opponent, uh, the, the pressure, all of those things, it, it was a real reminder about how, if you haven't done that over and over again, it can completely take away everything that we think this sport is about when it comes to, how fast do you move? How's your footwork? How's your forehand? How's your drop shot? How's your serve? No, it wasn't about that. It's can you handle this arena? I mean, and and Novak, one of, I think, the top three legacies of him is that nobody handles that arena better. Nobody is better on that stage. I, I haven't seen a tennis player handle pressure better than Novak Djokovic in my life. And, uh, you know, this final especially the first set we can talk more about was another example of that. What do you think, Amy?
3: I think it was more profound that he won the way he did. Although I leave open the possibility that in the very near future, Alcaraz could get it together and they could engage in a tussle a very close match in which Novak could win all the crucial points and rise to the occasion and win in five sets like that I could definitely see that happening so he would have both under his belt but um, I think it's a very simple analogy and it's been used a million times in sports but a commenter on our last show said that Alcaraz was playing a sprint when he should have been playing a marathon or he was prepared for a sprint and he should have been prepared for a marathon. Well, you know what? Um, Ask any sprinter to go out and run a marathon. It's not that easy. Like you got to change your mentality. You got to change your whole approach, the way you train everything. Um, So we'll see. Uh, Novak is, is prepared for just about anything you throw at him, sprint marathon or, or, you know, relay anything in between. Um, we'll see if Alcaraz or some other player can rise to the occasion.
2: Yeah, I like that. So I think what we learned here is that the five set win, if that had happened, would reveal this much of a gap. Yeah, the older player scraped one out. But this is a little bit more to the operating system, to some other something deeper, like you said, might be more profound. But still, and I like that. I got it, of course. And we we still I want to see, I want to see that epic Alcaraz Djokovic match, because that was a thing that was frustrating about this Roland Garros we didn't quite get to see we got like a, a flavor of it and then it kind of ended
1: yeah it really highlighted the the mental I think the way the Alcaraz match went down uh, whereas I think it went five sets it would have highlighted a, a lot of other things that I guess we're we we think about a lot more maybe maybe we shouldn't uh because and and I know I'm saying mental meanwhile it's cramps which sounds physical but it's just not the reality of the situation that Alcaraz can't run that much or he's gonna cramp. He can run that much. He was too stressed and that made him cramp. And that's what he said. And that's the only thing that makes sense because we've seen him run for five hours and be fine.
2: Well, so does Novak yeah. they have the meeting and Novak said, okay, here, let me expose you to the positive aspects of meditation and other yeah. such practices. Yeah.
1: How can you calm down? Part of it is just experience though. Good segue. This was Rude's third major final. And it was really his sixth big final, if you include ATP, uh, year-end championships, and Miami. I think he played maybe the best big match of his career in a straight set loss.
2: Yeah, I think, well, I haven't watched lots and lots of his matches, but having seen it, this was a really good effort, and the start was really good. And we talked about... Finding another way to lose, and I think what he did—he was swinging aggressively and not just being passive and looking to use his forehand and, and moving and pushing Novak and being aware that maybe Novak himself was a little tight. You know, so so much of this life and sport is about the language you have in your head and empathy and understanding the other person's language and putting some ideas in mind. And it was a very impressive opening set from Rude until until then it was six all. I, keep- here's
3: my notes from Rude. Um, like I said in the pregame, uh Rude cheating to the forehand on his recovery position. Novak not only took advantage of that with a backhand down the line, but a runaround forehand inside in. So that was a liability for Rude. I, I put Rude messing around with his return position did not work. Um, Rude played well in the front court, didn't do it enough. We had, just so our viewers and listeners know, Gil, Joel, and I have had a long extended discussion about success percentages in the front of the court versus the baseline. And I won't bore you with the ins and outs because we can do that on another show. But both guys did over 70% success rate at the net. I just don't think Rude did it enough. I know it's extremely hard to, quote-unquote, rush the net with Novak's depth, but I I saw many points where there were opportunities for him to come forward, and he chose to stay at the baseline.
2: Yeah, on Novak again, but you could see his pace picking up once he got back on serve in that first set to 4-all and then into the tiebreak, and as per usual, he was just so buttoned up in the tiebreak, and it was kind of... It's that whole blend of offense, defense, awareness. It's 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 quite impressive, and it, and the whole world kind of knew that was going to happen once it cuts to six all, and you see it happen though. It's a real art form. It's a real form of his genius. I, I was
1: just blown away by the physicality in that tiebreak. The first yeah. three points were brutal. Novak did so much running in the first three points, and it's one thing. I, I'm pretty sure the uh, the game leading into the tiebreak. <clears throat> wasn't wasn't all that, that physical. So it's one thing to play that first point, which was long. And, and Novak found this unbelievable forehand down the line winner. It's another thing to play the next point long and the point after long. And not just middle of the court were trading ground strokes from stationary positions long. It's really Djokovic doing a ton of running and long. And still, the refusal to miss—no shortcuts, no trigger pulls. Was he tired? Yeah, he was tired. You could hear it in his grunt. You could hear it. You could see his shoulders moving up and down at an extreme level. But he was not going to take the easy way out. Willingness to suffer to me—big key in the first set tiebreak because he—he he was there. Was tension? There were nerves throughout the first set for Novak.
2: Well, when you see you see two of those overheads missed on an overcast day that he missed badly in the first set and and, and then Rude missed one too. And it's just kind of staggering to me to see tennis players this skilled miss overheads. And yeah, Novak was tight. And yet then in this tie break, he kind of like fought through it. There's your suffering and working through things. It's just very impressive. And those those points, that opening points of this tiebreak, those were hard.
1: That doesn't get tight though, right? Like, you're never too tight to run. You might be too tight to hit a great forehand down the line into the corner. Right. But you're never too tight to run.
2: You're not too tight to run, but you're <laughs> to be too tight to hit to these spots. And you see the accuracy. And even some of the times when Rude came to net, you could and uh, come to net to Novak's backhand. And Novak with the cross-court pass, you know, getting it over there. Not always a winner, but just making Rude then play the volley. I mean, that's a great play on clay is to pass cross-court. And then make the person try to do something with the volley because you'll probably pass them on the next one. I call it the the two-step tango.
3: I'd like to point out, since we're on this topic of running and his endurance and some of these points, I'd like to point out that I think Novak brilliantly took a page from Rafael Nadal to win this match, and and probably the previous one. I wrote a piece a couple of years ago on Nadal, and I called it his bag of tricks. Notice I didn't say dirty tricks, because everything is within the rules. But he takes a lot of time between points. Nadal does. He manages his time very well. He frustrates others. But he doesn't break the rules. He plays within the rules. And that's always the way that he has managed things, especially at Roland Garros. Well, what did we see Novak do today? He took a lot of time between points. And the chair umpire um, did not call him out or warn him until very late in the match. Uh, It was all within the rules. And you know what? It was really smart. And I think he got it from Rafa. He also took a lot of time when he missed his first serve uh, to his second serve. And there is no serve clock there. I thought that was brilliant. And that's where he's like doing a little mini meditation in between and um that's you know something that these younger players are going to have to learn because he managed his energy brilliantly
2: that's a great point and then and he talked in his speech about how he put his torture his team so it leads me to wonder of course what we, we talk about the impregnable qualities of his fitness and all that Again, to Tom Brady and these other kind of masters of longevity who we who we've learned a lot more about a lot in the last 10 years because prior to that, that wasn't happening. And yet at the same time, you wonder what goes on in that training, that recovery, because you know, he's not immortal. He's not immortal, Novak. He's not he's not a machine. So the ways he's had to manage himself and his energy and his physicality and his stretching. So it'd be interesting to see how that continues to roll out on through the rest of the year.
1: Yeah, he also lobbied chair umpire Damien Dumasois to start the clock later on the change of ends. And Sometimes with a subjective thing like that, like when do you start the clock? Complaining is a good idea if if you want if you want an adjustment there. So I thought that I also noticed that, and that was I'm sure just a tactic. Let's see if we can get some more time on the change change events. Although in fairness, a lot of players have have felt that at Roland Garros there isn't quite enough time on the changeovers. Um, second and third set, I thought it was less about physicality. And I think we saw kind of the Djokovic 2.0 where he's developed a lot of serve plus one proficiency later on. And the first serve and the forehand was dominant. A lot of short point dominance here. But I think particularly against Rude, the forehand sticks out because there were points in the match where I'm looking at this djokovic Rude matchup in the second and the third. And I'm thinking, whose forehand is actually doing better right now? Whose forehand is bigger?
2: We talked about this during Australia. Remember, we noticed, you, Amy, you were talking about how Novak had gotten stronger and was hitting the ball harder in Australia. And then you could see, after he got through that hurdle of the first set, Djokovic thought, all right, yeah, whose forehand is stronger. And you could see maybe Rude, some of Rude's mind and legs starting to weary a little bit. I think some of Rude's depth and, and precision was less as we got into the second and early third set. So Novak said, yeah, here's my forehand. Welcome to it. And my backhand's way better. I mean, so the, the Novak's that, yeah. that cross court backhand is just unbelievable. Not not that it's hitting it, it, it not that it's hitting winners all the time as much as just into the corner, into the corner. I mean, it's an interesting thing. Like, let's say the Novak cross court backhand, the Rafa cross court forehand. I mean, two of the greatest shots ever.
3: I thought, you're right, Gil and Joel, I thought Novak did a good job with the plus one forehand in particular, playing off really good serving. Um, Normally, it's sort of a red flag for me when a player is putting well over 70% first serves in, because then I wonder, well, are you going enough for enough on your first serve? But Novak has proven a lot recently that he's an exception to that. And if he does what I call it's almost like a double double in basketball, if he does the double seventies, um over 70%, well over 70% first serve in, and then well over 70% first serve points one, then that's a great sign for him. And that's what it was today.
1: Yeah. Uh what is it? Uh difference in win win on first serve percentage, it it ended up being more than twenty. Uh, Djokovic at 80% on clay. It's absolutely phenomenal. And rude being at 57%. Novak and,
3: and Rude's, I think his first serve in was pretty low as well. At one point it was Uh, in the fifties. Yeah. It's
1: it it ended up at 64%. I don't know if he made up a lot of ground in set three. He did actually 82% in, uh, in the, in the third set where rude was holding pretty comfortably until, uh, until five, all.
2: Well, he had. A, I suspect then Root had a, a philosophical talk with himself at the end of the second set. It's like, quit forcing it. I mean, if you're getting eighty percent in a set, you're pretty. You're, you're making a a mac a strategic decision about deployment. Mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, like, okay, but I'm gonna. I am going i, I got to get this sucker in, and let's go to work here because it's not the other way is not working.
1: It was damaging though his well I mean statistically it wasn't damaging enough I thought Djokovic was actually very aggressive on the first serve return. Throughout the third set he got so much looser and just willing to just swing out hit out, you know, especially in return uh, or on return I think he figured. Like maybe i'll put together a game where I make you know four or five great returns and it'll it'll give me that easy break of serve so that was. That was bothersome for Rude. You might be right, Joel, that Casper was taking a little bit off the first serve in the third set. Do you know where I see a huge technical gap here that really stands out to me? Where? Defending the backhand. Rude slices when he's rushed or stretched on the backhand. We all know that Novak doesn't. He hits an open stance drive backhand, and he gets speed on it, and he gets depth Mm -hmm. on it it's a it's a night and day difference
2: oh well that's that's exactly your spot on well that's what we we're talking you're talking about the forehand earlier so novak said look guess what i'm going to match my my forehand versus your strong foreign and so there's not going to be as much of a gap even though you have this this forehand that's pretty darn good casper but then the backhand you're right it's, it's completely and they everybody knows that everybody knows that about the rude backhand and the novak backhand is one of the one of the greatest ever so that's why that whole thing okay cross court and and defend the way novak hits his backhand i wonder he when he's actually defending defending i don't i mean he's in a deeper part of the court but and then if you hit it short yeah that's just not good math for rude backhand to backhand
3: i thought rude looked really flummoxed on the backhand at times not sure whether to hit slice or top it Shanking a few of them, they just get into a really good rally, and then out of nowhere he'd make an error on the backhand. So yeah, that's a liability for him. He's gonna have to figure that one out.
2: Did we have that talk about Berrettini in the in the Wimbledon final a couple of mm-hmm. years ago? It's the same thing. Yeah. So then, so then Roots' choice is okay. I gotta go redirect. I'm gonna go down the line to Novak forehand. But if Novak is feeling on the forehand, he's gonna send you running. He could send you running with a crossboard forehand. So it's a lot of yeah. It's a it's a it's a tough. Uh, a tough set of geometry out there.
1: Yeah, Rude's backhand is much better than Berrettini's, at least. Right. Uh, And I I do think in the first set, he did a good job of taking it down the line, which was we uh, identified that as a key before the match, that he needs to ask a little bit more of his backhand, and he can't just be predictable cross-court. Amy, you pointed out earlier in the show that there was a lot of – a lot of forehand inside in success by Djokovic. Mm-hmm. A lot of that came off of Root's cross court backhand.
3: Yeah. Um Mateo may not may have a worse backhand, but at least he took sets off of Novak.
2: True. Well he did that. Well, he did that I think, <laughs> so
3: something's working somewhere oh, something's in working. There. Well,
2: Barrettini, there's a um, and since that was Wimbledon in particular, there was a brazenness to Berrettini in that final that was exciting that made that final come alive. And, and Rude was on his way in the first set, but he couldn't quite get over it. Novak kind of clawed his way into the clay in a way that, you know, Berrettini, Berrettini kind of put his way through that first set at Wimbledon two years ago.
1: Yeah, I, I like that word. Berrettini would always, in, in a lot of his matches, he goes on this big rush of energy and the crowd is in it and he's conf comp- Yeah, Rude keeps it a lot more low key. And I think maybe he could benefit from coming out of his shell just a little bit uh but again i mean it's it's tough Joel you said before the what when we were off air what was casper's biggest fault in his career so far in the major finals
2: what i am trying to remember what we said
1: you said he keeps playing he's he's played guys with like a combined oh uh... oh
2: this is what to tell you. yeah he's yeah he's played guys he he played uh He's played Nadal and he's played Djokovic, so he played guys who've had a combined total of forty-five majors. I guess only forty-four going in, and and then the other time he played Alcaraz, he he didn't just play a rising star, he played the rising star. You know, maybe the fourth time the seas will part, and he'll get someone he'll he'll play Rublev, and they can each go for their first. Right. Zverev <laughs> going for in another final.
3: It's interesting. I don't know why I did this. I just looked up Djokovic and Berrettini because it was in my mind that they have played in slams, if not the slam final. But um so they've played in recent years, they've played at the US Open, at Wimbledon, and at the French and each time it was four sets and each time Matteo won a set 7-6 so it's you almost don't... like he got that that one set that Casper did not get today but then Novak just went from there
2: <laughs> He won the Wimbledon final he won the first set in the tiebreak right but and he actually and he kind of that's pretty good he won a tiebreak versus Novak too yeah
1: it's, all... it's yeah don't let's yeah. It's my least, it's been one of my least favorite matchups in all of tennis. They've played the same exact match like four times now.
3: Yeah. And by the yeah. fourth no, time. No, I'm sorry. At the US Open it was seven five. He won the first set seven five. Okay. Um, when they played at the French back in 2021, he won the third set seven six. So it's interesting. It was like the same kind of match, you know, one really close set and then Novak dominating the other sets.
1: Let's yeah, Amy. You you don't need to, you don't need to remind me. Uh, I was I was courtside for the U.S. That's Open right. match, and I That's was like, right. oh my god, I've watched this match three times this year, and we're watching yeah. it again. Anyway, also,
2: Gill. Also, Gill. I think Berrettini kind of is in is a conflict for your airtight tennis sensibilities. His game, the holes in it, you know, the ups and yeah. downs. I mean, Gill. You know, we know Gill is a kind of a, a stay the course. You know, Spanish raised player. So you're not going to see. Uh, you're not going to see um, uh, Berrettini at the Sanchez-Casal Academy you know, <laughs> playing that way.
1: Yeah. Th- there was a thing, though, that I guess we we had seen in the Berrettini matches, and we did see in this rude match, which is that you, and we've seen it throughout this tournament against Fucevic, against Davidovich Fikina. When you play your best tennis for a while and you come out empty-handed, it's so hard to still believe that it's your match. And I thought the second set in particular, deflation from Rude, no more nerves for Novak. Uh, that's a bad formula. It it just tilted it even more.
2: Hey, that at that sense, at that sense, this does, this is where this is where I buy into. I completely agree with the recreational to pro dynamic. It's it's just like them for us. You know how many times you play a you play a really, you give all you can against a better player. And you think you could make a go, and then you lose it seven five, seven six, and that uh, right. And it's just that that slight little margin. The better players now seven percent ahead. You're seven percent behind, and then the whole thing, you know, it gets late quickly.
3: And the you start to have the thought, well, at least I didn't humiliate myself. And that's the worst thing you can start thinking, because then you've already, you already like <laughs> lost. I've had that
2: thought at three. I've had that thought at three all. <laughs> <laughs> well i humiliate myself yeah
1: let's kind of go back to the brady thing real quick because i do think there there is an interesting debate to be had i've been kind of thinking about how federer uh aged into his mid to late 30s how we've seen rafa age only a year older than novak djokovic but also lebron and serena and tom brady how can we compare and contrast Novak and, and what, what he's doing right now to to those guys?
3: Sure. Well, I it's interesting, isn't it, that Brady played well into his 40s. I mean, it's almost like a little subtle signal. Um, I may play into my 40s because look who I got in my box. Uh, I loved that, by the way. I just hats off. Um, I cannot imagine. Having the guts to do that, but uh, it's great. It was wonderful, and uh, yeah, I, I think um, Novak. He he's not really other than the you know occasional ticky-tack injuries. He's not really showing the wear and tear when he was sprawled out on the clay at the end, um, and you could really see you know his body against that clay. I was like, gosh, this guy is fit, really fit so um knock on wood I don't really see any end in sight
2: so compared to other athletes um yeah it's interesting team sports team sports a little different I'm just gonna say, I'm gonna say that too mm-hmm. team sports are a little different the team sports you get breaks the team sports other guys have to take the shot it's a little so it's a little different I'm not diminishing them at all because they have their degrees of difficulty and hey and uh Tom brady got tackled you know that's a that takes a lot on your body too you get that's a physicality to that sport that's way different than tennis so i don't know it's kind of uh it's fun to think about it's fun to see that soon what is soon enough we're going to say is 40 the new 28 hmm. i mean when i you know once upon a time not too long ago 30 was considered like 30 30 and then it gets okay 35 and yeah it's it's like i Novak, it's just amazing um tom brady yeah, what, what did he win his last Super Bowl? Was he 41 when he won that last Super Bowl?
1: I think he was 42, actually. 42? 42. <clears throat> um, yeah. Uh, no, I think he was 43. I have it written yeah. down that he was 43. It's 43,
2: yeah. and he won a Super Bowl.
1: It's mm-hmm. insane. I, but, and I'm going to go into more depth on this on Monday Match Analysis, but I actually think Novak has a pretty good case for the most impressive of the unbelievable, graceful agers of the modern era Uh, just because he's the guy who I think we've seen the least change with and also the guy whose physicality is most essential. So Brady, never a mobile quarterback, was getting rid of the ball faster than any other quarterback in the league uh, in the latter half, so was really good at avoiding getting hit and he was a total pocket passer. So it was really his mind and his arm and his ability to stay healthy, right, that those were the cornerstones of his game. And LeBron, you could see he's playing less minutes and he's not jumping as high and he's not, you know, he's settling for jump shots maybe a little more often and choosing his spots more often. Like, he's a different kind of player, still great, but different. Uh, Nadal, I think different. Um Feder was pretty close to Novak in like kind of keeping the same thing going on, uh, but I I guess Roger just wasn't winning as much as, as Novak after 35, not quite as much, right? He did win some, which was amazing.
2: Well, they felt like command performances whereas Novak. It's like Roger, great, one more, well done, and then he did one that, and then another. So they felt like they felt like bonus. Novaks feel like business. Right. They just feel like it's not like, it's like, well done, well done, Novak. Now you can go out. It's like, no, now you're going to go into Wimbledon and be the favorite.
1: He's 11 and 2 in his 30s in major finals. He's more efficient in his 30s than he was in his 20s. I get it. The competition's different. I get it. Some of, you know, he was still in development uh, during some of those losses in major finals early on where I think mentally, maybe he just wasn't the same as, as he is now, but like, that's a legit stat that suggests that he's more efficient and he's better in his thirties.
2: He, he yeah. Some- I
3: mean, Roger and, and no, uh, Nadal aren't really there, you know, so, or they're not, they're not, they haven't or had not been at the peak of their powers. So I think that speaks to the, the three of them, um, and what the, three of them have meant to this era. Um, but just in terms of, you know, greatness and age, I was reminded of Mickelson winning, Phil Mickelson winning the PGA Championship at age 50, when it really came down to him and Brooks Kepka, the younger guy. And um, that was impressive. Uh, obviously, Novak has far eclipsed mickelson's accomplishments um just you know by the fact that mickelson has not won all the majors it's golf Um, though and no huh it's golf yeah it's golf it's it's golf but you know what you you do lose your um like the the putting is is something that really really goes down typically if you look at the stats and i'm not i mean i i watch casually i used to watch it a lot more but it is highly unusual for someone to putt as well as he did in that tournament um, at his age.
2: Um, the match-closing stuff of earlier, I think earlier in his career, Novak had some issues closing out matches, and I think he addressed some of that during his time with Boris Becker. Remember, there's a period there where he lost several slam finals. So there's, there was Murray and and Stan Wawrinka zoned on him in a couple of finals in 15 and 16. And you're right. And since, he's, since his 30s, he's gotten a lot more more buttoned up, the the numbers bear it out. Um, I also like on the macro basis, um, bringing out my pom-pom cheerleader thing for tennis. I spent 50 years in America, this is how it works in America, defending tennis as a sport. Remember being like in uh, uh, growing up and thinking, oh, I see the guy who's 37 on the football team is more of an athlete than the guy who's number five on the tennis team. This gets to the role and international listeners might be different, but I know in the US for great many years, Tennis has had to, yeah. We're a sport too. A, a common tennis thing you hear from a lot of older of players and coaches. Oh, he uh, he's a good tennis player. He's not what you call a good athlete. I think whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait a second. So I just spent. I mean, you guys are younger than me, so you haven't had to deal with this as much. But so seeing Novak emphatically show the world, it's kind of like you're you're waving the flag for tennis. You're putting tennis in a big way at the athletic table that's different than when guys win one or two majors in tennis is incidentally. It's kind of, it's crossover significance for tennis, not always as sociology, but as athletic significance. And I, and I enjoy seeing that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Again, stylistically what Novak is doing. And we saw it in the first set. Like he can still be a, a Titan of physicality on a tennis court. Which is crazy.
2: And it's not seen as like a, a a requiem, one more for you, buddy. You know, it's like, that's what's ha- like, uh, again, that's how some of these other triumphs are sometimes seen. Yeah, he got one more at this late stage. Again, it's like Novak, it's like, he's not, he's not slowing much at all.
1: Right. And it wouldn't seem like that because you just look at the trajectory and the pace of things. Like this post-2018 era has yeah. been just as fruitful as the pre-2018 era now
2: arguably more arguably more. grant and granted, of course, the point is, you're right. He, in the post 18, not as many, well, he had, he had some pretty darn good efforts against Federer Nadal in there that, that Australian open final where he straight setted Rafa, of course, the great Wimbledon in 2019, where he comes back from championship point down twice. I mean, Yeah. Okay. It's Interesting
3: to me that Novak had this documentary crew following him in 2021. And he got three quarters of the way there. And he made it all the way to the final of that last one, you know, thinking, okay, this will be documenting the calendar slam, and didn't quite get there. And to be honest i'm not even sure what happened with the status of that documentary um but hopefully someone is following him now <laughs> and let's let's take another crack at it
2: well and maybe you then reuse some of the footage and you do this whole yeah. thing and you start the new documentary at the end of the 21 documentary with mm-hmm. the with the, the with the um upsetting loss
1: yeah let's talk about the calendar slam um before we head into wimbledon let's let's save that because uh, yeah. yeah, it's back. It's back. Plenty to say on that. Exactly. Yep. Anything else on on this, or have we have we covered it all?
3: Uh, a pat on the back to us for continuing to do this show and and figuring out to do this show, even when some people said it was too late. Um, I think we we caught it at a pretty good time, and I'm really enjoying um, this run by Novak.
1: Absolutely, good point. Love it. Great way to end it. That'll do it for this episode of three. We're available on all podcast platforms. Appreciate it if you leave a review on Apple and podcast. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and leave a comment. Hope you enjoyed. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll see you next time on the next episode of three.